Brown for the LA Clippers. You're now tuning in to Cruise Control, hosted by my man, Randy Cruz. Holla. This is another edition of the Cruise Control Podcast here on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Got Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal joining us now. He's on Twitter at HerringWSJ. He covers the New York Knicks throughout the NBA season. Chris, what's up, my man? How you doing? Really good. How are you? Doing good. Can't complain. Summer is going quick, man. The NBA season will be here in just about two months. Uh, NFL next month. Uh, which one are you looking most forward to? Uh, NBA, yeah. I mean, <laughs> NFL, I, I, I've never been big, big, big on the NFL. I covered it right before I started the Knicks beat, but I was one of those church children who was in church every every Sunday. Um, and so, you know, it spent probably from like 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning Sunday to like one thirty or 2 in the afternoon, and then would go back around 6 or 6.30 at night and stay till closer to 10. So I was gone most of the day Sunday and didn't really get a chance to watch football. Um, I got into it because I started playing football video games as a kid. Right. Um, but never, my, my big thing, and I, I, I always had this working theory, if you go to like a major D1 school that has a decent football program that, that people really cheer for or really supportive of, I, I get the impression that you care more about college football based on that than you do about pro football. And when you combine that with the fact that I, you know, that I was in church all the time as a kid, and probably up until the time I was about 16 or 17, I just never had like a diehard interest in football. I've never been a big fan of any one team. You know, I grew up in Chicago, but was never really a big Bears fan. Um, so I'm, I'm much, much more looking forward to basketball. You know, just because that's what I'm, I know and what I'm tied into. And I feel like last season was crazy because of the historic nature of it, or the near historic nature of it with the Warriors and. Cleveland winning their first title, that was historic for them. And so I'm, I'm excited to kind of see what happens next, obviously, with Durant having signed with Colton State. I feel like there's more to look forward to with that. So at the NBA, you would say college football because you are a Michigan alum and, you know, Michigan football getting Jim Harbaugh last year had, had, had a great year. Um, so I guess going into this year, that's more something for you to look forward to than, than the NFL, right? Yeah, I mean, I was tweeting with someone, I can't remember if it was yesterday or today, um, who, he went to Michigan State, so he's kind of arguing about the whole <laughs> Michigan thing. And Michigan, you know, they're they're like everyone's, uh, I guess you could call it a dark horse, but not really, because it seems like everybody's kind of picking Michigan to to be in the top five, top ten, right. in the playoff this season. And, and so it's like they're the sexy pick to do it, so it's really not that far-fetched that it happens. But the guy was complaining. He was like, man, I you know, Michigan was – they had a good season last year. Harbaugh did a good job. They're 10-3. But let's be real, they were only one game better than Northwestern, and Northwestern's not picked to finish in anybody's playoff or, or blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, I see that, and I kind of understand where he's coming from. I think Michigan is getting a lot of hype just because of Harbaugh. But they are probably going to be much better on defense than they were. They're bringing in really great recruits that can play right away. You know, their best player from last year is going to be a junior now, so he's going to be solid. Um, you know, I, I don't know. And it's Harbaugh's second year, and Harbaugh traditionally does better. I think every single season in the college ranks, he's always gotten better in the second year. Mm. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what they'll do, but it's there's a lot of buzz around the football team for sure in Michigan, so I'm excited for that, especially. 
Well, Chris, I know me and you haven't uh, talked about basketball on the show in, in quite some time, but we had the finals, we had free agency, we had the NBA draft, the the, the Olympics are going on. So lots to get into. Uh, we're going to start with the New York Knicks. Um, they did a lot of moves. They, they, they were not quiet this offseason. Uh, just just to kind of break everything down, because we we kind of know what it is. Uh, the Knicks they trade for Derrick Rose. They they signed Joe Kim Noah. They signed Brandon Jennings. They signed Courtney Lee. They re-signed Lance Thomas. They don't re-sign Langston Galloway, and they also have a new head coach with Jeff Hornacek. So, uh, trying to put all that into perspective, um, the Derrick Rose coming to New York because that was that was the first domino. What did you make of D Rose coming to New York? You know, I think people probably can remember back to some of my tweets and stuff. I I didn't think it was the greatest move. Um, I understand why they did it. You know, I've talked to enough people behind the scenes about why they did it. And obviously since then, some of the people, the decision makers who speak publicly have kind of gone, come forward about why they did it. But, um, you know, in general, I'm not a big fan of giving up, uh, you know, decent assets for someone who hasn't played good basketball in a long time. Um, and frankly, you know, to me, I, I know Robin Lopez is not an MVP caliber player. I know Derrick Rose at the height of his career was and has shown to be that before, and Rose is relatively young still. But to me, I thought Lopez was their most consistent performer last year. Um, he was healthy for the first time in a while last year, so, you know, there was some encouraging signs from that. He improved the most out of any guy they had in the lineup last year from the beginning of season to the end. He really seemed to get comfortable in the offense. And to me, I'm someone that values the idea of some level of continuity. Uh, they were a 32-win team last year. I figured if you kept that core together um, and you had maybe a piece or two around it, you know, you, you can kind of get a team that can find its way into the playoffs um, just by adding some depth to what they had last year and trying to reformulate a couple other pieces. Um, and I also thought, you know, giving up Jaron Grant, uh, granted, again, not a star player, not someone who had the greatest rookie season, but again, someone that played very well toward the end of the season, and quite frankly, someone that I think you could kind of afford to give some minutes to to see, is he ready to take the next step? Could he potentially be the starter in a year or two on this team? And so I kind of thought they were going to give him the possibility of, of a look there, and obviously they chose not to. They decided to kind of jump ship with that for a chance at Rose and one year at Rose. And uh, that's what I find interesting is that they're going to kind of take a one-year flyer on Derrick Rose. They didn't want to spend big on Mike Conley. Um, and, you know, some of the other options that were there, Rondo and other guys like that, they wanted to go with someone who is somewhat proven but is still trying to prove himself to get back to where he was before. And instead of spending big free agency money, getting someone that's already under contract. So I was a little bit surprised that they pulled the trigger on that. Uh, I was a little surprised that they ended up giving up assets to do it. But um, I get why they did it. And, you know, the minute they do that, Joakim Noah instantly becomes really interested in the Knicks. And then you have Courtney Lee, who says that he's more interested in signing with the Knicks, perhaps even for a discount, because Noah signed with the Knicks and Rose is there. So, you know, based on all that, if it sets off a chain reaction, maybe it's a better pool you know, kind of in tandem with everything else than it was just by itself. But at first, I really was not a big fan of the Derrick Rose trade because I'm not sure we've seen enough evidence yet that he's really ever going to be anywhere near the same as he was five years ago. But, you know, who knows? This is the first time he's not really rehabbing any sort of injury. Um, he's still relatively young. He did play much better the second half of the season last year when he had gotten over the, the orbital bone fracture. So they're they're positive signs there, but I don't really know what to expect from it. I mean, there's really, no one can say definitively how many games he's going to play or if he's going to stay healthy. We just don't know. So it's a gamble. 
But the good thing for the Knicks is that it, at least it's just a one-year gamble instead of it being, you know, year two of a five-year deal like it was with Amari when he started getting hurt or something crazy like that. I mean, for me, I, I was a fan of the move because – when when you look at it, Chris, you know any trade that the Knicks move, you kind of look, you, you you try to find and make sure if they traded any draft picks, and, and you know we 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 learned from the Barnani trade and so on and so forth that when they when they acquire somebody, they always give a they always give up a draft pick, and this time yeah. it's only Lopez and Jerry and Grant. I know he's the the, the youngest out of the the people that were traded with Jose Calderon, and to get Derrick Rose, the former MVP. Everything could work out if he remains healthy, and the fact that he's he's on a one-year deal, I think no matter what, the Knicks needed help in the backcourt as far as the point guard goes. We all can agree that <laughs> us and Knicks fans did not want to have Jose Calderon starting anymore with the Knicks, um, you know, being relegated to a, to a, to a backup point guard. And yeah, you get Derrick Rose, and the big question is. You know how far can they go if Derrick Rose remains healthy, which is which is why I think getting Brandon Jennings on on a one year deal is like the extra insurance in the event Derrick Rose does not play enough games. So now when they get Jennings on a one year deal, he wants to prove to everybody that everybody that he can still be uh, consistent, can play, not be injury prone. What did you make about them signing Jennings? Well, that's my thing. I mean, think about what you just said there, because. I guess all these moves in a in a vacuum, none of them are bad. And, you know, I don't think any of them were bad. I do question the idea of going as far with the contract as they did with Noah. I don't know that he's an eighteen million dollar a year player mm-hmm. for four years. If you're, you know, if it had been something where they're giving Noah a two year deal, or that you know, that maybe the amount of guaranteed money that there was in the last couple of years of the deal, I would have felt much better about something like that. Everything else I could kind of live with. Derek Rose per year. You know, maybe that's a decent gamble because if he's really good, he's going to be grateful that the Knicks kind of made the offer to get him. And, you know, and they can resign him maybe at a reasonable dollar figure. And, you know, I don't know. But I've also seen fans that say definitively they don't necessarily want Rose on a long-term deal, even if he has a good year, just because they're afraid of what injuries might kind of lurk in the years to come. But what you said specifically is that you go and you get Brandon Jennings' insurance for Derrick Rose. That's kind of risky, too, just because Brandon, he'll have something to prove. But he is coming off a relatively big injury himself. Mm. Um, and, you know, he's young. Like, I, I guess that's the thing is that the Knicks looked at all these guys and said, none of them are that old. They've all had injury problems, but none of them are that old. And so, yeah, on the one hand, you kind of figure um, they should be okay because they're not old and they shouldn't be broken down physically at age 27 or 26 or, in Noah's case, 31 or whatever he is. But, I mean, and then Phil, I, he had an interesting comment that he made during the press conference where I asked him this question about these injury-prone guys and bringing them in. And he said, well, we really looked at kind of body structure and, you know, are they essentially are they strong in their legs? And he was saying, basically, you look at Noah, his injuries lately have been shoulder injuries, not leg injuries. And then he basically said with Derek Rose, it's been a while since he's had a leg injury. And then with Brandon Jennings, he kind of said it as if it was like a freak sort of thing because it was an Achilles which is really rare for someone to rupture or hurt an Achilles at his age. And so he kind of explained those injuries away. I get that there's a lot of optimism that they are, these guys are finally over their injuries. I get that there's optimism that the Knicks medical staff has improved from the years where you know guys would get hurt and play on injuries all year long, like Rasheed Wallace. There's just really no way to tell. Um, I think Jennings is a perfectly fine backup. I think he's much better situated for that than he is to be a starter with a, a playoff caliber team when, you know, he's been in situations like that before 
Milwaukee and other places. So I think it's better for him to be in a situation where he's off the bench. I do think you could probably play him and Derrick Rose together because Jennings is a pretty decent shooter from distance. Uh, he's not very efficient. He's not the most efficient player in the league, but when you look at his three-point numbers over his career, he's been pretty solid from there, whereas Rose has obviously struggled from that distance. So it, it's an interesting dynamic, but I, you know, I, I do think that they probably would have been better suited getting a really, really solid uh, third-string point guard. Um, or maybe, you know, I, I guess maybe Courtney Lee can handle the ball a little bit. Carmelo is a pretty ball-dominant player, so he'll handle the ball. We'll see. But to me, the biggest question mark I had about the summer was not about who they got. It was just more about the types of deals they signed people to. I like Jennings at one year, $5 million. That's not going to hurt you that much either way. It's very similar to what Derek Williams had essentially last year. But for Noah, I just don't know that I would have gone four years fully guaranteed, especially – when it sounded like he was head over heels in love with the Knicks and the Knicks were head over heels in love with him, who were you really competing against for his services? I mean, there was some rumors there that the, the Wizards and a couple other teams would have been interested. But once it became really clear that he was going to sign there, let's be honest here, Tim Bontemps from the Washington Post reported, I think, a night or two before free agency opened that he was going to be getting a contract. I think the report said he was going to be starting at $18 million a year. And the reality was that it, it's just a contract for $18 million a year total. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we, we knew that that was his deal beforehand. So if they had it that figured out beforehand, and Courtney Lee said that Joakim Noah was reaching out to him before free agency even opened and signed with the Knicks, signed with the Knicks, we know that some of that stuff was in place beforehand. And so it's just a question of why did the Knicks feel that they had to spend so big and so early on Noah and for so long. If it was just two, three years, whatever, but going that fourth year, um, you just get the impression by then that KP will be a legitimate bona fide starting center. So that that was all I was confused by this whole process. The other question I have was like, how how strong are you on Courtney Lee being the the, the starting two guard for the team? Because I, I I could be wrong, but I was hearing like Eric Gordon, Jamal Crawford, maybe some other guys that, that they were trying to get. How high? How high was Courtney Lee on on the Knicks' radar, and was it just a matter of a matter of you know other guys staying or going somewhere else, and they just settled on Courtney Lee? No, I, I think I think this was their first priority all along. I think what it was, you, you heard other names. It's it's typical for teams to go talk to multiple people at the same time mm-hmm. because you don't you don't realistically know who's going to accept your offer, and so Courtney Lee was someone the Knicks wanted. And I think he was their first priority all along, at least the people I've talked to in their front office said he was their first priority at that position all along. But, you know, the Eric Gordon stuff was getting more traction, in part because his people talk a little bit more. Um, but, I mean, theoretically, you know, the Knicks aren't stupid necessarily. I think they realize a lineup with uh, Courtney Lee and, you know, considering that you already have Derek Rose and Carmelo and Porzingis in that lineup makes, makes way more sense than Eric Gordon. And frankly, makes way more sense than even someone like uh, a Jamal Crawford. Because think about it, Eric Gordon and Jamal Crawford both need the ball in their hands quite a bit. They both dribble quite a bit. They both are looking for their shots as well. And at some point, you kind of get to you reach a stage where Porzingis is going to suffer by not getting to touch the ball enough if you've got that many people, um, you know, who all demand the ball and all are 15, 20 point per game scorers earlier in their career. And so Courtney Lee is a guy that doesn't really require many touches, who's better on defense than all those other guys we talked about before. And, and is just someone who's going to play his role, and it's kind of a 3 and D guy. And the Knicks have been so short on that the last couple of years. You really think about it. Lance Thomas they had last year. Um, you know, Langston Galloway to some extent, but not quite. I don't really think 
Langston Galloway is big enough to really consider a full-out 3-and-D type of guard. Um, and then before that, I mean, you look at guys like maybe Shumpert, you know, JR ideally would have been that, but probably wasn't consistent enough defensively to really consider him a 3-and-D guy. Andy likes to kind of handle and hold the ball a lot. Uh, but, you know, even Shump, Shump was pretty inconsistent. You think back to that year where the Knicks won 54 games, they had a couple guys that all kind of filled that 3 and D role yeah. to some extent. And, and that's what they, you know, they had that to some extent that year. And since then, they've really struggled to really put multiple guys like that on the court at one time. And so I think it's Courtney Lee fills that role perfectly. And Courtney Lee, they got him on rel- relatively good value, I think $12 million a year. It's totally fair for him. Uh, not a guy that's been injury prone before, and so he's better for that reason. Um, but he just fits the roster better, and I think it's very clear to me that that's who they wanted. Um, it's just that Eric Gordon would have been like a secondary option if they couldn't have gotten someone like him. But the fact that Courtney Lee came off the board first and then those other guys found situations after, mm. I think is a pretty good indication that, uh, that they wanted Courtney Lee and they are just trying to get a commitment out of him. The, the big thing was that Courtney Lee knew that he had other offers that were at least going to be equivalent, if not more, than what the Knicks were offering. And so I think that's kind of why he, uh, why it looked like the Knicks were interested in other guys first. And you know what? Uh, Derek Rose feels right at home already because he didn't play one game yet, and he's already on stage at the Garden with Drake. Yeah, I, I saw that. <laughs> I was uh, a little... A little confused, not so confused by <laughs> being involved in that, but more so than anything, Derek Rose bringing his kid on stage, uh-huh. like Drake kind of introducing PJ and Derek at the same time as if, like, it, it was just kind of like an awkward, like, what do you do now? Now he's out there, like, Derek Rose, I, you know, God bless him, uh, you know, if you're a big fan of his or not. It's just not really the most emotive person. He doesn't really say much. Right. You know, it doesn't really show much emotion. And so, I mean, there's that classic clip of him being introduced at the All-Star game and everyone else kind of doing dances and making faces and Derrick Rose just kind of standing there looking at everyone make all these faces like kind of, why are you look so hyped? Like, we're, we're just here. Like, let's just, let's just, a stoic face. And that's kind of how everything looked at the Garden, too. So I just wasn't really clear on, like, mm. I'm sure Drake didn't tell him to act a certain way once he got out there, but it just looked, kind of looked like a boring moment. Um, and I also don't know that the city has, like, been fully ready to embrace their Rose yet because they haven't played here yet. So it's not like the sort of reception they would have had if Carmelo had shown up or, you know, I, I guess Carmelo probably would have been the biggest name that he could have thrown out there. But I don't know. Either way, I did see it. I thought it was a little awkward. But we'll, uh, we'll see what comes of Derrick Rose's stardom here in New York. And, it'll, you know, the interesting kind of wrench thrown in there as well with the, the civil sexual assault case that he's got coming up in a couple of weeks. Um I guess I guess more like six weeks or eight weeks, but you know it's interesting timing with with all this stuff. You know it's, it's kind of flown under the radar. I'm sure it will get more attention as time goes on. It's not a criminal case, but it's still not the sort of news I'm sure the Knicks really want out there. I'm sure they'd like to see the fire put out pretty soon. Our last one on the current Knicks team. Um, the one fear that the Knicks fans had going into the free agency was the fact that you know they did not want Kurt Rambis to be the head coach, and we and all our fears were have gone away because they've got rid of him, and now Jeff Hornacek is the new New York Knicks head coach. Um, what do you expect from uh, from Hornacek? Was that choice kind of like from left field uh, for you? Uh, I know, um, you know, Knicks fans wanted Thibodeau, but he went to Minnesota. I don't think he was – I don't think he really wanted to come here. And I, I know there was some, other, you know, other guys involved, but Hornacek is the guy Phil Jackson chose. What do you expect from Jeff Hornacek this season? 
here's the funny thing, and, and sometimes, mm. you know, I'm in a place where I can't really report everything that I've heard. Um, you right. know, talk to people, and there's different levels to it. You've, you've got people that you talk to on background. You've got people that you talk to on deep, deep background. You've got people that you talk to on the record where everything is fair game, and you can quote them by name. You've got people that you talk to off the record, meaning that you can't use any material that you've been told. And I had people telling me off record, you know, the Knicks are talking to two people here, or at least expect to talk to two people here um, before this process is over, who are totally out of the league right now. And I kind of racked my brain to think, like, who is this? Who are they talking to? Who could they even want to talk to? And, you know, the speculation of who would be out there that they'd be interested in that's out of the league. And so, obviously, Thibodeau, your mind goes to Thibodeau because he's technically out of the league. Mm -hmm. But you know that Phil's relationship with him isn't such to where they're going to sit down. And so I'm trying to think of other people that are technically out of the league. I'm like, well, who all would they want to talk to? And I guess for some reason, Hornacek really never crossed my mind. And the really thing about it is that I sat down next to Hornacek. We were literally sitting next to each other and said hello and kind of exchanged pleasantries in Chicago during the combine. And so that was the ironic part, too, is that, you know, the Knicks weren't their full contingent between Phil and Steve Mills. They weren't at the combine. Um, and, you know, they were being skewered partly by the media, partly by fans, you know, probably by the fans because of what the media had written about Phil's vacation and everything, as if they weren't doing anything. I kind of didn't say anything about that because I'd been told, again, on Deep Background, that there was a chance they were interviewing someone for the job. I assumed it was Vogel, and I assumed they were actually doing it in Chicago. And then, there, you know, the story came out that Phil had interviewed Vogel in L.A. But I kind of figured all along, you know, it's not as if you can't be on vacation and do something while you're on vacation or, you know, out of the public life. I don't think everything needs to be done from your office. You know, it's, it's a pretty mobile world. Now you can do stuff, you know, you could do stuff over the Internet. You could do a Skype session for an interview, although that seemed kind of out of left field. But, you know, that's essentially what happened. Mills wasn't present for the sit-down with Vogel or even the first sit-down with, uh, with Hornacek he wasn't there for. So, I mean, so the world has changed. I think we need to get past this idea that people can't, do their jobs remotely or can't be somewhere else and do an aspect of their job. Um, and it kind of leaves us with new narratives to come up with in the media because I think, you know, it's very, very easy for the media to say there's no fill at the combine, let's kill him for it. Which, by the way, I thought was ironic because I think it was only me and Adam Zagoria at the combine anyway from the media, the New York contingent, like none of the other beat writers were there. And so it's kind of ironic for them to say Phil's not here when they weren't either, but um, you know, I understood the criticisms. But anyway, to your initial question, uh, how do I feel like he fits? I think he's a good pick just because I think he'll at least force Phil to kind of become more comfortable with the idea of moving toward a more modern style of whatever he wants to run. And so clearly they're going to keep aspects of the triangle or they're just going to continue running the triangle just with new wrinkles and kind of uh, bells and whistles. But they needed that. You know, all along I think Phil might have had the right idea to go get Steve Kerr but the fact that Kerr was going to run new elements of his system and kind of create a new system based on what Golden State had, that worked way better for them than what Rambis and what I think Fisher were trying to do with essentially like just a really old kind of static triangle system that you know Fisher added a couple screens here and there to, but nothing crazy, and it was still pretty much the same system, and it looked, it looked outdated. You know, granted, Calderon didn't help it look any better, um, yeah. Granted, you know, there are guys that played selfishly within it, didn't keep the ball moving. But, I mean, I think we saw enough of the triangle 
with bad talent and with like mediocre, decent talent to see that they needed something else. They needed stuff to get them in a transition more easily, more frequently. You know, I wrote a story saying that they had the fewest um, turnovers created in NBA history, and so they needed to change some elements of their defense to get them in transition more easily. So that's probably my biggest question with Hornacek is, what does he want to do defensively? Because they actually seemed to figure out a pretty decent part of it last year. They were number two in the league in rim protection. Um, you know, they blocked a ton of shots between Lopez and Porzingis. Porzingis had a, a really nice safety valve there in Lopez. So how much of that gets replaced by Noah? Noah's obviously a good defender, but is he going to be totally healthy, one? And two, how does Noah's um, presence on the perimeter, kind of as a guy that can switch on pick and roll, how does that change Porzingis' responsibility as a rebounder and as a post defender if Noah's going to be up above the free throw line defensively? And how does Hornacek really compensate for that? What does he put in the game plan to kind of make that work? Because I actually think the starting five, if the starting five was on the court all the time, you've got a defense that potentially could be good enough to be top 10, top 12. But, um, you know, I'm saying that without really knowing what Hornacek plans to do and how he plans to coach them on that end. I thought Fisher was doing a pretty good job moving their defense in the right direction. I just think they had the wrong personnel last year in the backcourt. But I think they could have been very, very good last year with this backcourt and with the frontcourt that they have now, or that they had before with Noah. I'm sorry, with Lopez and with uh, Porzingis. So I'm curious to see what happens now. But um, the question for Hornets is, can he get them out in transition and really speed up the offense um, the way that he'd like to within the triangle format? And can he really make tweaks and improvements to the defense from what we saw last year? I'm going to get to a quick uh, Twitter question I got from from online um, from at W-I-R-M-S-S. In your opinion, Chris, Will, will the, the recent signings by the New York Knicks hinder Porzingis' growth in New York? Um, I, I think it's a little too early to know the question, the answer to that. I, I am a little concerned about that. I've written some parts kind of suggesting that I don't think it's as quite, uh, quite as easy a transition as what people are making it out to be. Um, the reason I say that is that you know, look, uh, Derek Rose obviously is very fast, very athletic when he's at his best. Um, he obviously can be a very good passer. I think he's kind of a, a souped-up, like, Royds version. Not to say he's on Royds, but I mean, it's like, kind of like a, a, a muscular, faster, souped-up version of Darren Grant. Um, I think he gets to the basket well. You know, he's a much better pick-and-roll player, kind of more decisive than Grant is. But he often will make those jump passes that kind of get point guards in trouble. That, you know, the purest of the game, if you look at the guy that runs the b-ball breakdown account, uh, Coach Nick, he really, really hates when guys jump and leave their feet to make passes. Russell Westbrook does it a lot. Derek Rose does it a lot. Right. Um, so people are going to have to get used to that. But um, what I'm saying all that to say is that Derek Rose, uh, he's not the best assist man when you really look at him. And if you look at who he really makes his assist to, they're often to guys that kind of are uh, pick-and-pop type players. So Pal Gasol. Porzingis obviously fits that bill. So I do think he'll get Porzingis decent looks from there. But I also think that, um, you know, Derek Rose controls the ball way, way more than Jose Calderon did or ever will. Um, and Carmelo obviously does too. And so all of a sudden you've got two guys that are going to take anywhere from 20 to 25, maybe sometimes 30% of your shots. And so you just have to wonder how much does that leave for Porzingis in an offense where you, you want to open it up and kind of spread the ball around. You would hope that Porzingis gets a lot of looks, but I'm actually kind of thinking more that 
Um, you know, he'll get a lot of open jump shots as a result of Derrick Rose. Hopefully he'll get some rim runs and some alley-oops out of it, too, out of the pick and roll. But I'm thinking more than anything, what you might see Porzingis become is a really good facilitator by having Derrick Rose break down the defense, maybe get Porzingis open for a quick second, but then Porzingis making an extra pass to kick the ball out to a Courtney Lee or a Carmelo. That's kind of what happened in Chicago. Uh, Rose, you know, for all the kind of respect he garners as a passer and as a guy that drives and kicks a lot, when you look at the statistics, Kyle Gasol and Joakim Noah actually averaged more assists to guys per game, like Mike Dunleavy and Doug McDermott and Nikola Mirotic than Rose did himself. And so I'm kind of curious as wow. to whether, you know, Rose might be more of a, a setup man to get the ball to Porzingis, and then Porzingis might actually be the guy that gets credited with this pit, and Rose is more of like a hockey assister in this offense. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but um, it, it's really too soon to know. I don't think it's fair to say that it's absolutely going to help Porzingis just yet, but I don't think it's fair either to assume that because Rose takes a lot of shots that Porzingis somehow won't get opportunities. I'm sure he'll probably show some improvements getting open shots from the free throw line with Rose there. One more Twitter uh, question uh, coming in. Will we meaning New York, get a veteran shooting guard, point guard, or big man, or are we set currently from at Forever is Shining? Um, I, I think they're probably close to done. You know, I, I've seen the crazy rumor. I mean, sometimes I think fans just kind of want certain stuff to be true, and I, I think they kind of wish for it to be true. You know, because the truth is, like, if you think about every breaking story you've seen over the last year, involving the Knicks. When was the last time that someone totally out of the woodworks had like a big unexpected story? You know, Ian Begley had the Derrick Rose stuff before anyone else did in, in terms of the Knicks' interest. Uh, I want to say Ian and ESPN were the first ones to report Fisher getting fired. Um, you know, Howard Beck was the first one to get Hornacek being hired or the fact that the Knicks were kind of zeroing in on him as the hire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like all sorts of stuff. I mean, my, my main point is to say this. You know, and I've had a couple things here and there, nothing major that broken to me, but, you know, it, it normally comes from someone on the beat or like a Woj or a Mark Stein. So if we all of a sudden see rumors about Lance Stevenson and the Knicks kind of looking at him as one of the last teams that would consider signing him, I mean, I know that fans want that to be true um, just because the name value or name recognition of somebody like that. But let's be real here. I mean, that's, that's probably not happening. Um, I, I saw the length that people were kind of, you know, throwing around, and it's like it didn't even look halfway reputable. I've never heard of the people that put the they, – they announced it as a rumor, first of all. It wasn't like a, a firm sort of thing. So, no, if that's, if that's what people are going to ask him about, I doubt it. You know, veterans generally don't get signed at this point. You know, you've seen Ray Allen, and Ray Allen apparently said that Spike Lee's been trying to recruit him to the Knicks. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Ray Allen kind of holds out and maybe wait until after the season starts again to try to figure out if he wants to try to make a comeback and with whom and if there's a team that maybe could use his services more. Quite frankly, I don't see Rayon as being a very good fit for what they want to do. Yes, he'd give the Knicks a good shooter, um, you know, assuming he can still shoot. You know, he's been out of the game for a while at this point. But at the same time, we've talked about wing defense so much. And quite frankly, he was a little bit of a liability for Miami, right, you know, in the late stages of his career with them. Anyway, just defensively, because he's not really quick enough to stay with people. And so he'd, he'd be a, kind of a shooting guard version of what we saw at Calderon. I mean, he's a very good off screen. Uh, but again, you know, unless you're going to get a ton of driving kick opportunities out of Derrick Rose, which I think that part of his game is a little bit overrated, I'm not sure how much Rayon's really helping you, um, you know, depending on what he has left in the tank offensively. 
and defensively, if he's going to be a, a sieve on, on defense, I don't think it really would make a lot of sense. I don't think there are a whole lot of vets out there really that make a ton of sense for them anymore, unless maybe they pull off some sort of trade or they get someone that the team is really just looking to get rid of on the cheap. But in terms of free agency, I think pretty much everything, you know, they've pretty much done everything. And I think they're up to, what, 17 people now for the 20 spots they need to fill for training camp. So mm-hmm. I think they're pretty much done at this point. We're here chatting with Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal here on the Cruise Control Podcast. He's on Twitter at HerringWSJ. Now, Chris, what's more bizarre, seeing Derrick Rose on stage with Drake or Amari Stoudemire retiring with the New York Knicks? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with Amari. As odd as it was to see um, Derrick, you know, on stage with Drake and his son, you know, his son that basically looked confused, you know, just kind of waving at everybody. Um, I'm going to go with Amari just because I thought Amari, he had such a good career with one team and then to then retire with the Knicks after the kind of career with the Suns, it just was kind of mind-boggling to me that he would do that and that he would have to do that. And then it sounded like he didn't have to do it. It sounded like something that he did more out of pride and not being offered more from, you know, more of an opportunity with the Sun. Um, and, and then, you know, it was awkward because there were people that wrote stories about that whole situation and then basically said, you know, wrote corrections or retractions in their stories saying that, you know, we have to correct ourselves because it's not that the Suns didn't, you know, weren't willing to sign him. It's that Amari didn't ask. He didn't ask to retire with the Suns. Amari apparently went to the Suns the last two off seasons and said, I'm interested in signing with you guys. Can you make space for me? to be on the roster, and they basically said no, that the team was going in a different direction, that they were trying to go younger, right? Uh, that they didn't really want kind of a veteran who, you know, they, they didn't really need that sort of presence on their team, and he's not a good defender, you know, so whatever. But, you know, I'm sure that was kind of like a, a knock to his ego. I'm sure he was kind of surprised to hear that, sad to hear that, angry, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so that was kind of what drove his decision. And it was a little sad to me. You know, I, I know a lot of Phoenix fans were disappointed by that. I know a lot of Phoenix fans were angry with the owner because of that, because they felt like it was a slight to Amari. Um, I know I, I did a podcast last week with, uh, with Bill Roden from the New York Times, who's retiring from there. And he was really blunt saying it. He said, could you imagine them saying that to Steve Nash, that they're not going to make room for him in a roster capacity or front office capacity? And he kind of made it a black and white issue, you know, make of that what you will. But yeah, it is a little surprising that Amari would kind of, at one point in his career, be shunned and the opportunity to come back. Um, you know, granted, Amari kind of left on ugly terms with them. The reason he came to the Knicks in the first place was that, um, you know, the Suns weren't willing to give him a fully guaranteed contract uh, for the five-year max, like the Knicks were. And, um, you know, I think they were within their right to do that. They obviously knew to some degree, the depth of his knee issues. And so they offered him a pretty decent contract. It just wasn't what Amari wanted and wasn't as long as, as what he thought he deserved based on how well he played. So he had he's had sore feelings with them for years. Uh, I guess I just never knew that they ran so deep to where he would choose to retire in a different jersey. And then, you know, the other part of it that was weird, and I kind of, you know, alluded to this in the podcast I did with Bill, the other part of it that was very weird is that, it, you know, we got invited to the press conference. I actually didn't go to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I didn't go, and I kind of told Amari's folks, the PR people, I said, look, not to be rude here, but you guys kind of leaked every single aspect of this before the press conference. You made Amari available for a Q&A with a paper out in Arizona. 
despite the fact that he's retiring in New York. So, like, why why make him available there and, like, have a mark kind of spill the beans on why he made this decision with Phoenix, and, and then he's going to retire in New York. So that was kind of odd. So he already spoke to all the questions we would have had for him, one. And then, two, it leaked, like, two or three days before his press conference that he was going to sign in Israel to play for the team that he had an ownership stake in. And so then they used his press conference at the Garden, his retirement press conference, to actually use it as like the springboard and like an intro for him joining this Israeli team. And so they kind of had the photo hop there for him to hold up his Israeli jersey. I'm just kind of like, what? It, it just was like all over the place. I didn't go because I basically said to myself, look, my job is to report. And if all the details of this transaction and him going to Israel and him leaving, you know, the Phoenix franchise to retire with the Knicks, if all this stuff is out there already, there's nothing new for me to report. And so I kind of have no job to do at a press conference when you've already released all the details to the press already. And then I think within four minutes of his press conference starting, he had like a Players' Tribune essay written out. And so it was just kind of, I thought they handled it really poorly. Um, I thought it came off looking really strange. I know a lot of Knicks fans were happy because Mark is incredibly popular here. I think most fans like him, even though he didn't play particularly well for the majority of his contract. But I think he kind of just changed the perception of what the Knicks were for a year or two. I think it laid the groundwork for Mello to want to come here. But frankly, I think he got overshadowed once Mello got here. And so that's kind of what made it a little bit awkward from, from my vantage point. But, you know, he deserves to go out the way he wants to. Um, it's, it's weird because he's not really going out. He's just playing in a different league. Um, I'm sure he still has a little bit more left in the tank. I'm sure he can be a good player there. But, uh, but it was awkward. It was very, very awkward. I, I didn't know why any of those things were handled the way they were. Um, you know, I, I really, for his sake, I kind of wish Amari had gone out as a son just because I think, you know, he had a great career there. I think borderline Hall of Fame career there. But um, like I said, if he wanted to go out as a Nick, and obviously he did, then, then he deserved that. And I understand why. Now, Amari, Tim Duncan, Kobe Bryant, all retiring this season, um, and, and countless other people from, from other sports. When you hear Amari, Duncan, and Kobe retiring, they spend – you know, I know I know Duncan and Kobe spend more time. So let's say between 15, 20 years. Does does that kind of make you feel like you know part of your childhood or early adult life is just leaving you because now you feel old and like wow, I just saw Kobe Bryant play 20 years. I just saw Tim Duncan play 19 years. I saw Amari Stoudemire play 13, 14 years. It's like where is time going? Do you do, do you feel like that? <laughs> no. Totally. I don't. I, I don't know that those are the guys that I'm going to kind of judge this experience off of. I, I think more so than that. You know, I watched the first person I really saw and was able to like notice how great he was, Michael Jordan. Right. But I obviously, you know, by the time he was doing what he did and really finishing his career, I was like 11, 12 years old. So I, I understood it, but not totally. And I didn't have a, you know, I had no real um, reference point for like his retirement from the league the first time. And his return back to the NBA, although I do remember it kind of a little bit, but not entirely. The first person that I think I'm really going to have a really great grasp of, like, how meaningful he was to the league and how great he was and kind of at the height of his career and everything he accomplished. I think LeBron will be the first person that I legitimately have kind of seen from beginning to end. So I, I think he'll probably be more my reference point, and I think the fact of seeing him almost 15 years into his career and starting to see kind of his career wind down probably in the next three years or so. Not that they'll retire within that span, but I think we'll probably start to see him come down statistically and in terms of his dominance. I think that's probably more going to be my reference point. But, yeah, it is crazy to think that, like, 
essentially since I was really starting to watch the NBA. And like the Spurs have never been bad in that span. Right. And that so much of that you can attribute to Tim Duncan and to Popovich and kind of literally tie it to like when he came into the league and when Pop first started coaching him and, and looking at looking at that whole part of it and the fact that Kobe held on as long as he did. I mean some of the people that he played against this the fact that Garnett, you know, we, we might still lose Garnett. No one's really said anything definitively about whether he's going to come back or not. Um, the fact that Pierce is still kind of putzing around and, you know, it looks like he may still play one more season. I mean, it's crazy to think about guys. And the fact that Ray Allen still might come back. I mean, it's kind of nuts to think that people are still around. And with that, on that note, too, the fact that we're even hearing any rumblings about Derek Fisher is probably the wildest part of that. Just because oh, God. Think about the, the way his career has kind of changed and, nosedived over the last two or three years is just like remarkable but the fact that he came up in rumors a couple of days ago is another you know there's never like a free week or two weeks where the Knicks don't come up <laughs> for weird awkward news but to have Amari's news and to have Derek Fisher right behind that is just bizarre yeah I, you know I, I, I follow you on Twitter and, and I'll be seeing the tweets of like you know are, are the Knicks going to let me live are the Knicks going to let me be great for one day and then by the time you know it something else happens yeah, because the thing was the Amari, the Amari news came out like I think I'd had a long like nine hundred thousand word piece on Joe Kim Noah like prepped and ready to go. I'd been working on it for like the last week. I'd like track down clips to be able to use for the story in terms of like reference points so that people could see like what I was talking about with certain types of plays or certain types of sets that Noah was used in in Chicago. Uh, quotes and statistics and you, you name it, like it was in the story. But then to do all that, and then like the morning that the story is about to get ready to drop, the news comes out about Amari retiring at the Knicks. And it's just like, it, it's really hard. I don't know, and it's not like me crying about it, but it's like, I don't think people realize how difficult it is sometimes to prepare a really long piece, and then there's always some element of the news that either kind of blocks it out or kind of just like overshadows it for that day or for those few hours. Or something that happens, you know, I remember talking to Zach Lowe a couple months ago mm. um, about stuff tied to the Spurs. And I, I never asked him specifically what the story is about. He was like, I need one person for it, for this one great long story I've got reported out. But now I'm thinking I may not be able to write it because there's no way they're ever going to put me on the phone with this person. I got the impression of a Duncan that he was talking about. And this long Spurs story that he worked on for weeks and months or however long it was. But, like... He wasn't expecting the Spurs to get knocked out of the playoffs quite as early as they did and as quickly as they did. And so it kind of, like, changed the trajectory of the story. And I assume Duncan retiring kind of threw another wrench in there as well. And it's just, you know, it, it makes stuff difficult on us sometimes where you've got a story in the way in your mind that you want to run it and kind of orchestrate it. But, you know, stuff changes day to day, and I guess that's kind of the news is that it doesn't really operate exactly the way you're going to think all the time. Now, you know, with you being a Chicago native, uh, during, the free, during the free agency period, we just didn't know where, where Dwayne Wade was going to go, whether he was going to stay in Miami, um, go somewhere else. We heard Chicago. We heard a little bit about New York and even, even Milwaukee. Um, and then ultimately he decides to not only leave Miami but go back home to Chicago. So you being a Chicago native, he finally goes back to Chicago two years, I, I, I believe. Um what are your thoughts of him going to the Chicago Bulls? You know, is it too late? Are you just glad to see him play for his hometown? And is there any chance for the Bulls to contend in the Eastern Conference? Start with 
with your last question first. No, um, <laughs> I don't see it. I, I just don't see. I mean, I I guess I'd be a little surprised if the Bulls turn out to be better this year than the Knicks. Um, you know, again, it's hard to tell if the Knicks from an injury standpoint. Right. Um, and you know that the, the Bulls aren't way way healthier. You know, Jimmy Butler had some injury problems last year, and if I recall correctly, maybe a little bit the year before that or the year before that. Um, Rondo obviously tore his ACL at one point. Wade had been pretty injury prone. It seems like he's been trying to make more of an effort to play through stuff um, and has played more games the last year or two, but it seems like he's made more of an effort because his teams have kind of just squeaked into the playoffs and have struggled a little bit, and Bosch has been hurt, and LeBron hasn't been there to kind of lean on nearly as much. And so Wade's taken more on his shoulders because of that, but he's also much, much older, and his game is based way more on athleticism than someone like Carmelo's is. So I, I frankly think that, you know, it's a team that, could have injury problems, one. But two, and I would say more importantly, the, the team just doesn't fit together well. And there were tweets, you know, especially from Chicago fans, who were like, you must not know anything about the Bulls as if I don't watch them a ton since I'm from Chicago. But I, you know, I said, you know, when the, the Bulls were trying to find ways to trade away Calderon and to trade away Dunleavy to make space for Wade, I basically said, you know, it's kind of ironic that they're going to trade probably two of their best shooters on their roster. Granted, Calvin is not going to be one of their two best players. He's probably not going to be one of their best six or seven players. But all I was saying is, like, this is a team that's not going to have any space in their lineup whatsoever if you play Butler, Wade, and um, Rondo together. Like, none of them are good shooters from outside. And if you put them all on a team, it just kind of defeats the idea of having someone like Fred Hoiberg be your coach. It would kind of be like having Hornacek as your coach when it's a guy that loves to kind of spread the court and shoot a lot of long-distance shots and create space for people to drive. And frankly, this is a team that, you know, yes, you have Miritich, yes, you've got McDermott, but if you want to play those guys with a lineup like Wade, Rondo, and Butler, Butler's really the only good defender in that group. Um you know, they had Pau Gasol last year who really wasn't good. I guess Gibson is probably a good defender, but he can't really shoot much either. And so depending on which lineups you want, you're just going to have some really, really lopsided lineups that either can score but not do it from perimeter range, which is important in today's NBA, or guys that can, like, score and not defend at all, which, you know, and the, the Bulls saw the first real change with that last year. I think at one point I remember – Casey Johnson kind of had like a running tally. I think at one point the Bulls won 17 games in a row where they didn't allow less than 100 points, so they allowed 100 points or more in 17 games in a row. And it was like the longest streak they've had since the the year after MJ retired where they were god-awful. And they basically were like the baby bull, and they were just horrible. And so, you know, that's the only thing. is I just think their, their roster lacks a whole lot of balance right now, not a whole lot of good defenders. They let a couple of good younger players walk. You know, they, they let somebody like Etoan uh, Morgo, who I thought actually probably would have been a better option for them than Rondo, and maybe has a brighter future there. But it's a team that still wants to convince themselves that they can win now. And I think sometimes that's kind of what gets you in trouble. It's what's got the Lakers in trouble to some extent once Kobe um, had decided that, you know, that they're going to keep Kobe and have him on a bigger contract. And I kind of fear that's what they did with Wade, too, is that they don't have any immediate way to really bridge the gap they looked like they were maybe on a path to tank after they decided to go ahead and trade Rose. You know, you have some nice pieces. I think Lopez is a good piece for them, but they just have a bunch of guys on the team that can't shoot. Some they can defend, but if you're going to have a bunch of guys, five guys out there, none of them can really shoot from three, it just makes me wonder how you're really going to score without guys standing more than three feet apart from each other. 
So in your honest opinion, uh, we know Chicago did not make the playoffs last year. They do get Wade. They get Rondo. But they lose Noah and Derrick Rose. And, and also Mike Dunleavy, who goes to Cleveland. Do you think that, that, that the Chicago Bulls will miss the playoffs for the second straight year or they get back in it? If I had, you know, gun to my head, I'd say they missed the playoffs because I just don't. I mean, I think you're relying on a couple things that aren't given. You know, I think Wade has held up pretty well, but he hasn't been terribly efficient, and he did that in lineups that actually, you know, some lineups that didn't fit him that well. I think Dragic wasn't a really good fit with him because they both kind of need the ball, and I think the same is true here. Rondo needs the ball to be effective on offense. Um and I think Butler, for the most part, does too. That's generally true of any player that doesn't really shoot well from outside is that you kind of need to be closer to guys to be able to score or you need to be able to have the ball so you can drive to the basket and get a bucket. So I don't see them as working particularly well. I mean, I think they've got some decent post defenders. I think Butler, when he wants to be, can be a very good defender. I think he kind of you know, dwindled a little bit as a defender in the last year just because he's been doing so much on offense. And it was taking so much out of him offensively that he couldn't really defend the way he had. I mean, he was an elite defender a couple of years ago. I think it's been all, you know, all defense before in the NBA. So, um, but I, I just don't know that I see enough, you know, cohesion on that team to really make the playoffs. I think they've got enough talent, but I think that the talent is all kind of in the same vein. You've got a bunch of good wing players. You really don't have wing players that can shoot though, which is important in today's NBA. And I'm not totally convinced that it's a team that really wants to get up and down and run the floor the way that Hoiberg ideally would like to do because, you know, I don't really see Rondo as kind of a more deliberate point guard that kind of dribbles around and try to find an angle to pass the ball from. And Wade is kind of a more ISO-based player. Um, you know, I, I, I ran the numbers on Jimmy Butler, and Jimmy Butler held the ball about 33% longer than he did the season before, which is part of why I think Rose and him didn't work together is because neither one of them really had a sense of who was supposed to be running the offense, and they both were kind of alpha males on that offense. So um, I, I'm, I don't think it's going to work. I, I'd be a little bit surprised if it does. They have the talent to make it work, but it kind of reminds me of just a, a team that has, you know, it kind of reminds me of that first Miami team, except that the pieces don't, they fit way, way worse together than they did when it was LeBron and Bosch. Because, you know, at least with LeBron and Wade, those were still guys that were close enough to their primes who both were really, really good with the ball in their hands. Now you've got Wade, who's a diminished version of what he was before. Uh, Butler, obviously, is not LeBron. Um, and, you know, you don't have, instead of Bosch, you have Rondo, who can't shoot. I mean, Bosch is a much better shooter than Rondo. And, you know, Rondo needs the ball, too. Can't shoot, isn't really a committed defender. All three of those guys, when they first got together in Miami, were good defenders. And maybe you've got one really good defender now in Butler. And, you know, Wade can kind of defend when he wants to, but he's older and doesn't move around as well. So it's just kind of awkward. I mean, I don't think this piece has fit together well enough to really make the playoffs. But they have enough talent. I just don't think that Hoiberg has shown that he can really coach them into the playoffs the way that Thibodeau did before. And I also don't know that, um, that the pieces are going to fit together quite well enough to make the playoffs. So just just me writing down right now, looking at the, the landscape of the East, uh I guess we can agree that at least six of these seven teams are going to make it. Cleveland, Indiana, Toronto, Boston, that's four. Atlanta, five. New York, six. Detroit, seven. And either between Washington, 
uh, Charlotte. I don't know if they'll if they'll get back. Chicago, and I doubt Miami. So maybe Chicago has to beat out Charlotte. The the one team you left out. I I don't know. I'm curious to see what happens. I don't necessarily think they'll make it, but I think people are a little sleep on them after what happened. And they didn't make a pick this year that really yells we're ready to win right now. But Milwaukee is another interesting team too. You know, I think Kid is a decent enough coach. They have enough talent there. Still young talent. But, you know, two years ago, they surprised everybody by making the playoffs. Yes. And then, honestly, the, the, the mistake Milwaukee made, I think, was the Greg Monroe signing. They made the playoffs. They had a little bit of a taste of what it was to win then. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is that Monroe was probably the closest thing they felt like they could get to an actual star player. He was only 24 years old when they got him. And it turned out to be a bad, bad signing for them, mostly because Monroe just is a horrible defensive player. And he moves very slowly, and that team was kind of a more up-tempo, long, quick, athletic team, and so he doesn't fit that in any way, shape, or form. But I, I thought they were on the right track till they did that. You know, you've heard all the trade rumors regarding him, but, I mean, think about it. They made the playoffs in a year where they basically didn't even play Jabari Parker, um, who, who's been playing better lately. You know, uh, Giannis is has been great statistically. I think he's still trying to put it together to be consistent every night. Chris Middleton is on that roster. I still think Jason Kidd is a relatively good coach. Uh, So we'll have to wait and see. It may not work out, you know, but I I like that team more than most people do. Um, But, yeah, you're right. I I do think we probably six of the teams, I think you could probably pretty clearly say that they should be in the playoffs. It would be a surprise if they didn't make it. And how does the West stack up to you? I know in the Warriors making moves, uh, Pau Gasol went to San Antonio. Um, Clippers didn't really do anything. I know Portland re-signed a whole bunch of guys. Uh, Dwight Howard left Houston. Uh, does, does does Memphis get back in there? Does maybe a new team like Utah or maybe outside outside chance uh, of Minnesota getting in there? How does the West look to you? Yeah, Utah, I think, absolutely should. I mean, there's no reason they should not. Um, you know, Utah was, what, one game, maybe a game and a half out last year yeah. with, a, with a worse roster than they have now. And um, you figure, you know, some of the teams in the West, um, Dallas, you know, it would be tough for them to get back there. Maybe they do. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But, you know, their, their, their team is going to be a little different than it was. Um, but I really like Utah's chances. I mean, it's interesting. You talk to Tom Thibodeau, and he's very careful. I talked to him a week and a half ago. Very careful not to put the expectations on them to make the playoffs. But at the same time, knowing him, you know he'll be disappointed if they don't make it. You know, he, he wanted to go out and try to get veterans for this team. Uh, he very much wants KG to stay there so that he can kind of instill that sort of presence on that team to get them ready, essentially be a coach on the floor for them from time to time, but also on the sidelines when he's not playing. Towns is probably going to take another step forward. He was fantastic last year. Um, and, you, I mean, you just saw glimpses last year, even without the kind of coaching that they're clearly going to get with Thibodeau now. That it's a team that has, you know, three, four years from now, could be one of the two or three most talented teams in the league. And so it's obviously a big jump to say they should make the playoffs right away because of that. But it's not inconceivable that they, they wouldn't, you know, make the playoffs. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out. Um, what I'm curious to see, too, after all this time, is now that KD is with Golden State, what becomes of Oklahoma City? You know, we've had small opportunities before to see what ends up happening with the, uh, with the Russell Westbrook lineups where he's out there by himself and Durant's not there. Durant's been hurt before. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. But to see a whole season of it 
I mean, it kind of almost gets overwhelming sometimes. You see Westbrook go out there and put up these enormous 39-15 and 18-type nights, you know, these huge statistical nights. But you look at it, and it's like it doesn't seem like a sustainable type of basketball, and it doesn't seem sustainable. I mean, there was that one season where Durant won the scoring title, but I think Westbrook took more shots than he did, which was the first time that had ever happened before, or either did happen or was about to happen, and Durant finished second in the scoring race or something like that. But it's just, you know, I it just kind of wonder if there's like a scale and maybe if he kind of tips that over just because there's not enough balance that will especially without Ibaka there anymore either. You know, I think people kind of forget, yes, that trade I thought was good for them at the time, but I was thinking it was good for them with the thought in mind that Durant would come back to get Oladipo. But now just kind of having Oladipo and, and having Westbrook there, I know you have Adams, I know you have a couple other guys who've got Cantor, but it's, you know, I just kind of wonder, I, I saw people saying that Oklahoma City should finish in third and there's no reason they shouldn't finish in third next year. And I'm like, it's still a pretty good conference. You know, I don't know that I could go as far as to say a Westbrook-only Oklahoma City team should finish third in the West. You know, the Spurs, even if they're losing Duncan, Duncan didn't contribute a whole, whole lot to them last year. And so them coming down from a 67-win season, I could very, very easily see them still finishing in second. And the Clippers, you know, probably didn't get too too much worse this past off season. You know, I, I could very easily see Oklahoma City finishing in sixth or something like that. It, you know, I'd be way more surprised to see them finish third than I would see them finish sixth or seventh. Yeah, I mean, the, the West is going to be pretty much wide open because, you know, it, I, I'm not too sure about a team like Dallas. I'm not too sure about a team like Houston. Um, d- does New Orleans get back into it after they missed out last year? New team like Utah. Um, I like I like Portland for what they did last year. Uh, you know, C.J. McCollum had, had a great year, I, I, you know, out of nowhere. The Clippers, that's the, <clears throat> you know, that's the one team that I worry about because <clears throat> that – you know, Chris Paul and Blake Griffin are going to be, free, you know, free agents next year. There's no guarantee that that, that one or both will be back. Uh, if you ask me right now, I, I I don't see either one of them coming back to, to L.A. Um, Blake Griffin was in that, you know, whatever rumor that, you know, the, the OKC was trying to pair up Blake Griffin and, and Westbrook either before or, or by or by trade deadline. That could happen. That could help OKC down the road. But um, in your in your honest opinion, Chris, you know, does does a guy like Chris Paul, Blake Griffin and some of these other free agents, you know, this summer, do they stay in L.A. or do they feel like, you know what, I, I'm getting up there in age. I think it's time for a new new opportunity, new new scenery. Does CP3 and Blake Griffin stay with the Clippers or even, in, you know, in the entire Western Conference? Um, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. I'd be really, really surprised if Paul leaves early. Um I'd actually be kind of surprised if either one of them leaves early or gets traded early. And part of that has little to do with them and more to do with Doc. Doc kind of has been the most staunch supporter of that group. And I think some of that speaks to the fact that he wants to – he's in charge of the whole thing. He's the GM there and the coach. Yeah. So he doesn't want to – like if he trades someone, it's kind of an acknowledgement that we couldn't get it done with this group, which reflects on him as a coach as well. Because um, they have enough talent. You know, They've had enough talent in the past to, to get there. Um, you know, they've, they've had their opportunities. They obviously blew a 3-1 three, three series lead um, a couple of years ago. And so they've had opportunities to get it done, and they had opportunities to kind of get it done before Golden State coalesced into this, you know, this juggernaut. And so they've had their chances. Um, but based on that, you know, Doc had opportunities to kind of try to, to really 
task around on Blake this year, especially with all the craziness that was happening with him. Um, I guess not from a legal standpoint, but from a, you know, just kind of from a behavioral standpoint, getting into the fight with the, the team manager and, um, you know, just like a lot of stories off the court that just had no business happening. Uh, with Blake Griffin, and on top of the injury and on top of everything else, and on top of how ineffective they were with, with Blake out there because of how, how little chance he had to play this year. So the fact that Doc is kind of overseeing that and probably wants to have as many opportunities as he can with this court, he, I mean, he talked about the idea, they got the meeting with Kevin Durant, and he said, look, we don't want to trade anybody to get you, but we can put together a big four if you come out here. Let's do it that way. So he, he's been trying to do this with them all together, and I get the impression that He's probably not going to want, unless something's going terribly wrong, I get the impression that he's not going to try to sell on that early uh, just to try to keep Blake in the fold, you know, because he's afraid that Blake might jump ship. Uh, Chris Paul might jump ship. You know, I I don't think that Doc is going to – I could be totally wrong, but I don't think Doc is going to look to deal them unless something's going horribly, horribly wrong, Uh, mostly because this is Doc running the show. And I think that it would be be an acknowledgement on his part that something's not – happening the way that he intended it to. And I think we all know that. I mean, we've, we've all kind of taken our shots at Doc before about the kind of rosters he's put together. And not so much that, because his rosters have been okay. They haven't been as deep as they should be, but they've been really top-heavy. But I think more than anything, it's, it's just that Doc kind of has this method where he always brings back players that he's you know, coached before, and more so than anything, that he gives up too much to get certain players. He gives up you know, a first-round pick to get someone and then gets rid of the player that he gives up the first-round pick for within a year, you know, Jared Dudley's and types like that. And then they go get a Jeff Green and, you know, and what it took to go get Austin Rivers from New Orleans, like all sorts of moves that in hindsight really didn't make a lot of sense for, you know, the, the cost benefit of it. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't see the Clippers getting rid of either of those guys at the deadline because I also think that Doc would probably feel like he had the upper hand in negotiations when it comes time to try to resign those guys a year from now, even if they do opt out of the contract. So now with the you know with the upcoming season, uh, I guess the schedule is is, is going to come out, and um, they were saying that OKC, uh, you know, Golden State is going to be in OKC on February 11th. So if that remains the same, I think that'll be the first time Durant goes back to um, OKC. Now, if if that happens, you know, his first game back in OKC. What's the reaction you think you know is going to be for him? Are, are, will it be on a level of LeBron back in Cleveland or Bosch back in Toronto, Shaq in you know in LA, Vince Carter in Toronto? Are we going to get that nuclear with Durant in OKC, or is it going to be somewhat near it, or maybe even beyond that? No, I mean I I think the atmosphere is really different in a city like that too. It's it's still a city that's really proud to have a team at all um you're obviously going to get a lot of booze there um and i'm sure they'll take their cues from russell westbrook who has kind of been very business-like about this and kind of cutthroat in the sense that, like you know he, he playfully said who you know when they asked about durant whether at this point that durant didn't you know let him know in advance he was like who, who are you talking about i can't hear you one of those things but i mean durant is one of those things he he's been too good to that city i mean he's donated money to the tornado stuff. He had a restaurant there. The restaurant's going to change names. They're going to rebrand it. I understand that part of it, but this is someone who was kind of idolized in that community that kind of grew up with that community, um, was the first star they've ever had for that franchise. And so I think it, it, it wasn't 
his method of leaving, while I think in some ways bothers people more because, you know, Golden State is more dominant than Miami was perceived to be right away. Um, and, you know, they obviously broke a record for most wins in a season. And he's going to the team they lost to. So it's different in that way, and it's kind of, you know, tougher for people to accept in that way. But he didn't get up and leave them on national TV. He didn't do it in some sort of disrespectful way. He's making a decision that he felt was best for him. And quite frankly, with the way that these guys are kind of vilified for not winning championships, I don't blame him. You know, it's how these guys are measured in the media and among fans a lot of times. I don't blame him for that. But, um, you know, I'm sure fans will boo him. It just won't be like a nuclear sort of thing the way it was with LeBron. You saw people burning jerseys in Oklahoma City, and the one that I thought was actually really inappropriate, um, a couple fans went by a lake or a river or something and, like, doused his jersey in kerosene and then shot, like, machine guns at it. Um, oh, wow. You know, to essentially light his fire on jersey that way, light fire to his jersey that way. So that was totally inappropriate and strange and kind of like a nasty message to send. But I don't think the average fan there is going to be – I think he'll get a lot of cheers in addition to the booze that he'll get in his return there, just because I think, you know, a lot of, he, he had a much different kind of relationship with the community there, never combative at all, um, you know, never, I guess, had his moments with the media there, but never, he generally apologized whenever he said something that anybody could have perceived as out of pocket. I think most people just appreciate him. And then, I, you know, I'm sure people will boo because that's the thing to do, but it's not, you know, I don't think it's some sort of antagonistic relationship. People like him so much. I don't think it'll come down. I think the team is going to be a villain in Golden State, but I don't know if Durant really fits that role quite as well. Now, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a guy out there who's a free agent. Uh, his name is LeBron James. Uh, I, I, I've heard he's pretty good. I think someone should sign him. What do you think? Me too. I'm, I'm not really <laughs> sure what he's doing out this point. I mean, I know he's, he's spent time. He spent some time, I think, out of the country for a while. You know, has been just kind of hanging out. But I, I was reading Lee Jenkins's piece on him in Sports Illustrated, the great cover piece he did on him, and until I read it, I really hadn't thought about the fact that he still hasn't signed, and neither has JR. I think Cleveland just re-signed James Jones, and it's so funny to think about the way they're like re-signing all these other like piecemeal sort of guys, but right. not like the star of the league, but, you know, and it's funny too, because I can't remember who put out the report, maybe it was Mark Stein or David Aldridge or someone, but basically said like teams have kind of quietly, through back channels, asked around like... You know, is there any chance we could convince him to go somewhere else now? Just because he's finally won the title for Cleveland, you know, after 52 years. Um, and, you know, like maybe he's kind of accomplished his, his all-time goal now and maybe he's comfortable leaving. I mean, it's a great pitch to try to get him to leave and to try to get a meeting or to try to get, you know, sit down with the guy. But uh, but obviously it doesn't seem that way. And the fact I don't think there are even enough teams in the league that, have the kind of money left to get him other than maybe Philly and maybe one other team. So clearly not going to happen, you know, but it, it is interesting that that hasn't happened yet. And I guess if you know where you're going and what's going to happen, and as long as you don't injure yourself, there's really no risk. Even if he did injure himself, if he was out for the next year with an ACL or something, that's not like Cleveland still wouldn't resign him. They would have to, right? You're not going to let him go somewhere else. And there's the idea of losing him again. I, I, you know, I mean, sources tell me this guy is, is pretty good. I, you know, he can he can put the ball on the floor. He, he can attack the basket. This guy is, uh, you know, they call him King James. I mean, I don't know. But uh, for a guy like that, of his height and his weight, to be a free agent still in August, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a shame. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't think I'll have any problem getting signed somewhere once he decides to do it. Two more before I get to, to to some random stuff and and we'll, and we'll wrap it up. Um, 
I mentioned CP3 and Blake. I know they're going to be free agents next summer, uh, 2017. But also, you know, people like LeBron, Durant, Curry, uh, you know, Paul Millsap, Golden Hayward. Uh, is, is, is next year going to be a year where we see multiple guys move around? Or is LeBron going to stay in, in, in Cleveland? Is Durant going to stay in, in, in Golden State? Is, is Stephen Curry going to stay with the Warriors? Is CP3 and Blake both going to stay with the Clippers, how does 2017? I know it's a year from now, but how does that free agency period, uh, you know, looking right now? I mean, I think you're, you're probably going to see some players move around. Uh, you know, that said, depending on which guys you know get offered the max and what have you, I think you're going to see a decent amount of guys they put. There's just so much money out there now. I mean, it's it's still the same whatever it was before, thirty million more that you can earn with your own team because of the extra year that you can tack on to a contract. But I think you're you're still going to see a decent amount of guys try to take a, a year, two year deal, whatever it is, so they can hit free agency quicker again. Because it's just kind of like, you know, uh, when we we're talking about like the housing crisis and everything else, and like the banking crisis that we had during the recession, it was kind of like nobody knew where the bottom was to all this. But with the salary cap. It's kind of like no one knows where the end of this, you know, the, the height of this is, like how high this will go and how high these numbers will climb. And so you still are seeing guys like Durant take essentially one-year deals or one-in-one deals, and LeBron probably likely to do the same thing now so they can go back to the well and sign a huge max for another five years next year instead. So it's it's fascinating to see how high the money goes. You know, it's also interesting to see how much some of these guys are getting. You know, like a guy like Mike Conley has never been an all-star. And it's interesting to see where guys' comfort levels are. You know, I remember thinking crazy to look at O.J. Mayo's situation and to think that he got nailed for the whole drug thing because it's like, man, what a horrible year to miss out on, you know, a salary from the NBA. You know, in a year like this where everybody's getting paid and Timothy Mozgov is getting $64 million or whatever he's getting in a year where he barely played. So um, I do think you'll see some guys move around and, and find new homes, but um, – you know, I think they're going to be looking for either winning situations or, or something else because it's you know there's really not a monetary incentive to just leave. Um, you know, maybe there is just for the one year, but you know I don't see Durant moving somewhere else, and I, I assume LeBron won't want to go somewhere else. But then again, you know, in the back of my head and everybody else has had you know Chris Paul and LeBron and all these guys would like to play together. Melo, obviously. And so it'll be interesting to see if that's going to happen in the next couple of years. When does it happen and kind of which team do they all decide to try to be the same part of? So I, I don't know what to expect. I mean, you know, this year, next this time next year, we could be talking about a lockout as well. There's a lot of stuff at play that the league kind of has to figure out. Um, and, and one of them is what the salary cap is going to be set at. And so it's, it, all of it is interesting to me. So the likelihood of CP3 to New York is what? Uh, you know, I, I think it would take. I think it would take the Clippers being pretty bad next year. Um, you know, a couple things would have to happen. One, Clippers, you know, falling short of expectations again. Chris mm-hmm. Paul wanting to leave. Chris Paul opting out because I, th- I think he still has another two years left as of right now. Um, and it would obviously take the, the Knicks saying, you know, thank you, Derek Rose, for your one year, but we're going to move on either because he's hurt or because he, he doesn't really play well or because they just want to move on from him. Um, and so that, you know, that's kind of a calculated risk, too. If he plays well, how ready are the Knicks to just kind of wash their hands of him after one year? Do they feel like it makes more sense to try to sign him and maybe they get him on a little bit of a sweetheart deal just because of the fact that he's been injured and they took a chance on him in a trade? Does that make more sense than getting a, a guy like Chris Paul who is a little bit older, who has been hurt before and missed time? Um, so it's it's... 
all, you know, it's all kind of up in the air. Does Chris Paul want to go to the Knicks if they they have another 41 season as opposed to being more competitive than that? Is there another place they can go play where he's immediately more competitive? There's so many questions out there, and it's kind of like just such a up for grabs sort of season. The only thing that seems really clear is that you know you figure the Warriors will win another 65 or 70 games with the roster they're going to have. You feel like Cleveland probably comes out of the East again, hands down. Um, but it's more a question of who's going to compete with them in the East, if anyone, and what really happens with the season. You know, one of the biggest biggest questions already is off the table. You know, Westbrook is going to stay in Oklahoma City, but beyond that, what else happens with these rosters? Who else moves cities and makes it really clear that they're posturing for free agency next year? And, and then what teams are in position to really make noise in free agency based on what they do this season, regular season wise? So there's a lot of questions, and I don't really know that we have many answers just yet. All right, we get to one more Twitter question, and then we'll wrap it up with some random stuff, Chris. Uh, from Fabulous O Four L, getting Kevin Durant is great for the Warriors, but are they deep enough right now to win the West? Uh, I think they are deep enough, but they're not. That doesn't mean they're deep at all. You know, I, I think most people would say last year's roster looked deep enough, but then obviously, you know, you have the Bogut injury, and that kind of changed the dynamic of everything. Because, you know, it forced them to play Draymond at center more minutes. Draymond was kind of thrown out of rhythm after that suspension and didn't play all that well at times. Uh, Harrison Barnes clearly wasn't ready to play the role of rim protector. Festus Azili wasn't totally healthy and didn't really look good at times. And, you know, they, they ran up some really random lineups there. They had McAdoo in there for a little bit. Um, just weird weird decisions that Steve Kerr made. And so we have to see. It's a team that's thinner now than it was, you know, starting center. It's not not quite as good as Bogut, um, Peculia, and, um, you know, the guys off the bench are a little bit more just kind of, uh, they're not brand names the, the way that they had last year. You lose Barbosa, you lose a couple other people, Azili, like I said before. So we'll, we'll have to see. I, I think it's a team, though, that, you know, anytime you can get a player of Durant's caliber and throw him in for Harrison Barnes and, you know, the only real losses you have are guys off the bench, but you still get to keep your starting five together essentially after that. Um, and Bogut, I think you take it. you got to take that chance. Um, you know, the the main reason you take that chance is think about it this way: you lose you lose a couple people, you lose um, Bogut, and you lose Harrison Barnes. But by getting Durant, you made sure that no other team in your conference could get him to make make more of a threat for you. You know, think about if Durant goes to the Spurs, all of a sudden that becomes a, a much more imminent contender for you and someone that might be tougher for you to knock out. Mm-hmm. Um, or, frankly, if, if Durant stays with the Thunder, that, you know, they should have knocked them out last year, didn't quite do it, but they become more of a threat to you by him staying there than if you get him and, you know, make sure that he can't play for another team. So I get why they did it. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, it's not that I don't like the question. I just think it might not be the right question, even if their, their depth is different um, and not as great as it was last year. I think it's still something you absolutely have to do. And 100 times out of 100, you've got to go get Durant because it just weakens everybody else to have him on your team. All right, we're, ch- we're chatting with Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal. We're going to wrap it up right now with some quick, uh, rapid, random stuff. So, Chris, uh, where should I start? Are you still waiting for Frank Ocean's album to drop? <laughs> Not anymore. Not, I, I've learned my yeah, life. Not put too much emphasis on it anymore. I, I, I mean, I, I still, every time I see it, there's like another date that I still kind of hold that hope for. I still go to the gym and listen to Channel Orange. I still think it's a great album, or at least a very, very good album. Um, I mean, I guess when it happens, it'll happen, but it definitely doesn't make sense to wait on it hand and foot because it's not 
You know, if you've been doing that for the last year, you'd be looking like a skeleton at this point, just kind of waiting there to, for the download button. But uh, I guess it'll happen at some point, even if it doesn't. I mean, at least the last album they put out was good. Yeah, he, he's getting on J Electronica level right now. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. Let, let me see. The best NBA Finals performance you've seen by a player. Uh, uh, oh, that's tough. Because Michael had that one series against the Suns that was like nuts. That's, that's my um, favorite for the record. That was a really crazy performance. Um, I mean, you know, it's the first time, I mean, maybe it's recency bias, but I mean, LeBron just put together a series where, and this is, keep in mind, this is one series after the one he had last year, yeah. where he basically was averaging like almost 40, like 40 point triple doubles every night. Granted, not that efficiently, but still way more efficiently than what Cleveland was doing when he wasn't on the court. But I mean, this year he led every single major statistical category for either team. So, I mean, that's pretty mind-blowing stuff when you think about that. So I guess I'll go with LeBron, considering that also the opponent was the best one anyone's ever seen. So I'll go with LeBron for that. Something the NBA no longer has from back in the day that you wish they would bring back? Mm. And I could be from... I guess it's the reverse. I guess I would say... At least for like a week, almost like Halloween style, we should let the NBA like do away with the dress code so that we can have like people come back and like do rags and <laughs> big horrible <laughs> outfits with like size 85 jeans that people wore uh-huh. and everything like that. So I guess it's not something that they had that they should no longer have, but I guess something that they didn't have that they should go back to not having for like a week. Uh, I, I think for me, uh, I guess I was so used to it, but... It could be so little, but to me, it's, it's big. Uh, two things. One, you know, having the, the NBA playoff and finals logo during the finals and the playoffs, I think they took off those decals um, last funny, year. Yeah. So it's just, and now it's like, it just it's just a plain court. And it's like, you know, I mean, regular yeah. season is playing, but at least for the playoffs and finals, you know, you can put that down. But I guess a lot of players were complaining that it was slippery or whatever. The case yeah, those be. are problems for the players because they slip and hurt their legs. Right, and I, and I think also having you know me, I, I was always a fan of the NBA on on NBC. I think that I never knew happened. that's where you were gonna go with that. As soon as you brought up the playoff thing, because <laughs> for me that's what sticks out for me is the music. And I think we tweeted about it before too. The music is so great. Chris always. I agree with that. The the NBA on ABC and ESPN is decent, but uh, maybe I'm just too biased because that was my childhood. But it, it'll never compare to NBC. Never. I hear that. I'll agree with that for sure. That's fair. All right. Um, let me see. You said on Twitter earlier that that the the Godfather might be the best movie ever. I, I want to know why. I want to know why. Oh, I mean the the acting is incredible. Um, I mean there's some things about it that I think you know you could. I, I think there are fair arguments up to maybe be made on both sides. I mean sometimes I watch it and I kind of feel like women aren't influential enough in the movie. And I mean there are reasons for that. I don't think with mobsters and mob families that women are generally all that influential, but. Um, you know, kind of wish there were more roles in there for, for those sorts of people and for women and stuff. And um, but you, when you watch it, I mean, it, certain scenes I watch, and I'm I'm like in awe of Marlon Brando. Um, one of my favorite movies is On the Waterfront. But when you just Marlon Brando's ability to use his voice and to kind of use the the really understated voice that Don Corleone has, um, that and, and to kind of watch. Michael Corleone, you know, or Al Pacino and his role kind of evolve over the course of the movies. Is, you know, the son who's like really not involved in the family politics and the guy that runs the family politics. 
you know, kind of goes from not being involved to being the guy that calls all the shots, um, to watch his evolution, and then to watch part two of it, which I think is the best part by far, and arguably the best movie of all time, to watch Marlon Brando, to watch uh, Al Pacino, and to watch Robert De Niro all in the same movie. You know, not ever on the screen together, but in the same movie, just how powerful that is to see three great actors, all, you know, three of the best actors of all time, kind of play different roles, but all kind of the same role, you know, in a way as well, um, just by being the head of the family and just kind of how powerful they, they were. Um, I, I just love the movie and the arcs that, that, that are involved in them. And then there's obviously the really famous scene, the christening scene and the scene with Fredo on the boat. So I don't know. I, I, I think, I, I don't even know if it's my favorite. I don't think I could say it's my favorite movie, but it's, I always delineate between favorite and best. And I could definitely see how people would say it's the best. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's structurally, it's just so clean for the first two movies. Um, but I, I think the third one takes a really awkward kind of spin. And, you know, there are reasons for that because of stuff that they couldn't iron out between the book and the, the film itself in terms of roles and Tom Hagen. But, uh, but the first two parts are pretty much flawless. Uh, you know, like I said, I think there are small things about it that kind of annoy me or bug me, but it's just the way that they're written. But the, the movie's fantastic. All right, three more. If you can only own five DVDs, five movies on DVD, and one of them being The Godfather, one or two, I'll give you that. So four more. Which one? Which ones you you would you own? Five only, bro. Um, five only. Um, Tough. Hmm. Which one to fire right now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just thinking like, because I I like certain types of movies, but there are probably some that I would throw out just because like they're all either too similar or like uh-huh. not fun enough like if these were the only five you had to watch i'm not sure you'd want to watch them over again but anyway so if godfather 2 is going to be one of them i'll use that um i'll go with cool hand luke um i really really like that one um I think it was a great movie mm-hmm. i'll go with cool hand luke um i'll go with uh I'll throw a Denzel one in there. I'll go with Malcolm X, although it's not on the same level as all these other ones, but I love that movie. I love that story, and I love Denzel. Um, I'll go with The Prestige, which, again, is probably not on that level, but I really like how much fun that movie is and kind of how different it is. Underrated. That gives me movie's three. underrated, bro. I, I tell people all the time, The Prestige and um, the one with uh, Ed Norton, the... the the illusionist Fight club no oh, the, the, the illusionist yeah oh do you like that one more than than prestige? i i might i might like prestige more because it it is it, different the whole magician kind of thing and i i think it was more of a competition thing right, right? exactly yeah the, the funny thing is that those came out like right around the same time and the illusionist came out i think a week before yeah a lot of people felt like the prestige was like a copy of that and i was like well I think the prestige was way deeper and had more of a plot to it. One, it was more it like had a really crazy plot twist to it. One, but two, I was like, anytime a movie comes out one week after a different one, I mean, that that's a pretty clear sense. Like they they've been working on this movie for years. It's not like exactly. Well, it's not like a story was written and then someone else wrote the same story three weeks later. I mean, I'm sure they're working on them totally independent of each other. But yeah, I put the prestige in there just because I think it's a fun movie. It's a really great movie too. Um, that I, it, it's not totally realistic, but it's a magic movie, so I can kind of make allowances for it not mm. fitting a, a, a totally normal plot. Um, which other two? Uh, yeah, you got I, one more. My, my favorite Hitchcock movie is Vertigo, 
Okay. I'd probably go with that. I really, really like Vertigo, uh, which LeBron has, by the way. And what's a fun fact about LeBron? <laughs> LeBron has Vertigo. Um, I think that makes four, right? Is that four or five? You I got you got Vertigo, Godfather Two, Kuhan Luke, Malcolm X, and The Prestige. Uh, oh yeah, so that's five. Okay, all right. Well, then I'll stop with that. All right. What about you? Oh man, Jesus Christ! I would so uh, um, I would say the Dark Knight because okay. of Heath Ledger. That that was crazy. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the Social Network. Um, I have that one. I own that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess anywhere between like uh, I I love New Jack City. I love Heat. With uh, De Niro, Pacino. He with Pacino and De Niro. This first time they're ever on the screen together. Yeah, and um, man, I, I I I know it's right there, but like right now it's just I will I will go with. See, I, I'm not a big Scarface guy. I'm not you know one of those that everybody loves and watches all the time. I'm just like eh, Scarface is cool, but it's like it's not a movie. For, it's not a movie for me to see all the time back to back. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I actually was having a conversation with my girlfriend last week. Um, I went to go, so she lives in Chicago, and um, I went to go visit her when we just first started dating. I went to go visit her on her birthday, mm-hmm. and she was staying in a hotel to celebrate her birthday. So I went to go see her, and she just kind of called me up to her room and buzzed me up. And I went up there, and she was watching Scarface, and she'd never seen it before. And she's like, is this good? And I was like, yeah. It's not that it's bad. <laughs> it's just that it's like, it's, it's such like a macho movie, and I mean, The Godfather is too, and one of one movie that I enjoy quite a bit that's not great, but it's good, Road to Perdition, uh, Tom Hanks, where he's kind of like a mobster movie, kind of tied to all that same stuff, the same time era, um, with, you know, it, it actually ties in with a lot of the stuff that you saw with, uh, what's the name of the show that was on HBO that was such a big deal with uh, Steve Buscemi, what's his name? Um, Anyway, okay. <laughs> it, it, it's not, I mean, it's just kind of like, there's a lot of noteworthy lines in the movie. Um, you know, say hello to my little friend, and all sorts of, or not even, you know, just like, I don't know, the, the world is yours thing where it's flying over. Like, there's just a lot, there's a lot of stuff in the movie that's said, and there's just like a lot of memorable lines and a lot of memorable scenes where it just opens fire on everyone and sniffs the coke. It's like, I don't think it's a great, great movie. I think it's okay. But I think it's way too long. Um, I think it's way too built around just one character. Like, I don't know. There are a lot of Pacino movies I, I prefer over that one. It's good. It's just not great in my mind. But I get why some people like it, for sure. Yeah, I, I, would, I would prefer New Jack City over Scarface. And I don't know if I'm in the minority with that. But for me, I, I think that would... That's fair. That would be a better movie for me. Um, That's fair. Breaking Bad or The Wire? What you got? I, I, I've discussed this on Twitter before. I would think that's why I asked. Bad, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not. It's not my way of saying Breaking Bad again. It's not necessarily better, but it's just the enjoyment factor is different for me because I, I think that Breaking Bad is easier to follow, and I think that when I'm just trying to watch a TV show, you know, for an hour or forty minutes, and just trying to like kind of cool down from a day at work or whatever. I prefer something that is a little bit easier to stay with and not 
you know, I just kind of feel like The Wire, unless you've seen it multiple times, just like with any show that's deep like that, you kind of have to really stay up on, like, who the characters are. And there's so many characters and there's so many seasons and the episodes. I mean, it's like police work. So much of it is just, like, really gritty police work and trying to figure out new tactics and ways to kind of spy on drug dealers and drug dealers of different ages and then, like, legitimate businesses that are trying, you know, like, that are trying to cover legitimate businesses that are actually underground drug covers and it's just there's a lot to watch and consider and to figure out and it's just it's too involved to enjoy it all the time um but it's really really good and it kind of takes a really level-headed sort of writer and actors to kind of make it interesting and compelling every single minute so i think the wire might actually be better but i don't know that i enjoy it quite as much as breaking bad like i've I've went back and watched breaking bad like six times all the way through I've never done that with The Wire just because I know it's like such a undertaking to like go back and watch it again and like watch it and like to where I'm going to understand every single thing that's said and like every interaction, every first deal that goes down. Um, so I'll do it, you know, maybe I'll do it later this fall before the season starts, but I don't know. It's, it's always easier for me to just go back and watch Breaking Bad, maybe because there's more humor involved in it as well. Right. Whereas The Wire is a little bit more serious and, and The Wire is like based on real life. And so it's, that part of it makes it difficult too because it's like when people get killed it's not to say i mean people get killed in the meth trade and the drug trade all the time as well but it just there's a part of it that feels a little bit more detached from reality and when you see the the cousins who have the axes and like other people like that you get the impression that there's some parts of breaking bad that are like more fictionalized than there's the wire and so there's a part of the wire that's a little bit more depressing too and so that's probably part of why I enjoy Breaking Bad more because it feels a little bit more detached from reality sometimes. Yeah, the guy right now, the guy from The Wire, he's in this this new joint on um, HBO called um, The Night Of. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Oh, which which guy from The Wire is that? Um, oh my God, the guy the guy from Brooklyn, the guy that played uh, Chalky White on Boardwalk Empire. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael C. Uh, yeah, whatever his name. yeah, I know he's. Yeah, he. Yeah. Um, okay, there's there's another guy that um. The guy that played McNulty on The Wire is on uh, a show on HBO called The Affair. Or maybe it's Showtime. I think it's Showtime. It's called The Affair. So I've watched that. It's like kind of interesting to watch him from like one role. Where, for the most part, I think he's pretty likable on on, uh, on The Wire. But then in The Affair, he's kind of like... He's kind of an asshole. Because like The Affair, the whole show is about this couple. And it's about this one guy, McNulty's character... Um, on Showtime and he they go on like a summer they like live in a summer beach house uh-huh. and then they go to a restaurant and he like immediately locks eyes with this waitress with his family you know, he's with his family but locks eyes with this waitress and immediately like has this thing for this waitress and he cheats on his wife with her all summer long and then eventually just kind of has to tell his wife about it and just basically says I've been cheating on you and I'm like in love with this girl I've been cheating on you with and so it's kind of a show about this affair that he and the waitress have and how many problems it causes and then the cool thing about the show I think it's gotten kind of bad at this point and I don't think season 3 has started just yet I think it's going to start soon but I think what makes it interesting is like they show they essentially show the show from four different vantage points McNulty's character McNulty's wife's character and then like the woman he's cheating with the waitress and then the waitress's husband and so like they show the exact same scene over again but they show it from different people's vantage points so like they basically the people remember conversations differently and so the scenes play out 
totally differently, even though they're talking about the same thing they did in the last episode. But it's like it doesn't happen the same way because people remember these instances differently. And so it kind of it's like a show that kind of forces you to question yourself and like when I tell people stories over again or for the second or third time, am I changing the story to make myself sound more favorable or not as much of an asshole? And it's interesting because like it, it makes you kind of think about the way you operate in your own life. But it's an interesting concept for the show, but I, I kind of feel like it got old after maybe like a season and a half. But I don't know. It's always weird to see characters on different shows. Like I never watched Malcolm in the Middle, but it's really interesting when I hear people talk about Walter White and like how different, how weird it is to see him like on you know, Breaking Bad after the role that he played in Malcolm in the Middle. But anyway. Yeah, uh, Mr. Robot is the other one I got to tell you about, too. I, I think I think you watch it, but that's one other show that get really people really thinking and should be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that, one doesn't, that one doesn't seem to require quite as much thought as, like, The Wire. I watched it season one, and I want, I want to go back and watch season one again before I start season two, but it sounds like season two's gotten out to kind of a slow start. Um, I don't know if they're kind of building the premise for season two still, so that it's like, you know, that it fits together better, but it sounds like it, it hasn't gotten out to quite as hot of a start as it did last year, but it was great last year. I thought it was really, really solid and really interesting the whole time. Before I get to my last question, I would say if I had to pick a fifth movie right now, you know, just, just off, the, off the jump, I would say either any, I, I, I gotta pick a DiCaprio movie. I think that's a fact for me. Um, and if not, I would I would probably say Point Break would be the fifth movie. I think that's okay. still, I think that still gets a little. It's a little underrated. I know people love it. It's like one of those cult movies, but uh, maybe not many people talk about it because it's like what 20, 25 years ago that it came out. Yeah, I always get Point Break messed up with Match Point. Um, I think it's called Match Point, isn't it? I've had this conversation with my girlfriend a couple weeks ago about Point Break. But yeah, that's, yeah. yeah I was going to say, that's good that you have that one because a lot of yours are like newer. A lot of your movies are newer. I always try to spread it out a little bit with like the different eras. But because um, like anytime I hear people say Batman, like the new Batman, you know, the, the, and I love Christopher Nolan's my favorite director, but anytime I hear people say like, oh man, this is the best one ever and like, you know, this is the best movie ever. Like, I do think it's great. It's not to take away from it, but I'm like, I always think, like, man, y'all are, like, too young. Like, if you think this is the best movie you've ever seen, you know? Mm. Like, and I love the one with Heath Ledger. I love it. Like, I I remember thinking it was total hype because it just died. You know, and I think we do that as a society sometimes. I saw someone debating Aaliyah and kind of, like, her role in, like, music history, you know, because, like, how did people perceive her before she died and then right after she died and the way she died? people talk about her differently simply because of how she died and i think there is some of that and i think sometimes that happens and sometimes people give too much credit where it's not really due because of that but um but yeah that one heath ledger's performance was legitimately like horrifying and terrifying it was like great and um and i think it was well deserved all the acclaim he got for that and the academy award he got for that but but yeah it's good good to hear you throw one movie in there it's a little bit older at least not for the last couple of years yeah you know even some people be like yo man don't forget about jack nicholson as as a joker i'm like i'm not I, I, if you really no. break, if you break it down he was great as the joker but that movie like the batman had a lot of years where it really wasn't very good even we've had great people play batman think about that like george clooney and and Michael Keaton, like really good actors, but like they just don't really fit the roles. Like it's not even that they don't fit the role well; it's just the movies weren't very well written. And there, there was like a good ten-year span where the Batman movies were just really garbage. 
but they've gotten much, much, much better over time. No, man, George Clooney as Batman. Uh, I, 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 I won't give you that one. I might give you Val Kilmer as Batman, but George Clooney as Batman, nah, I wasn't really feeling him, bro. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, more, it's more to say we've had good actors play him, but that doesn't make the movie good by itself. I mean, even, oh, if, no, no, even no. if you thought George Clooney was great, as Batman, the movies were still really garbage. I mean, I think what Christopher Nolan brought to the table is just better plot lines and, like, better scripts. And that's not to say it's been perfect. Like, I didn't think Anne Hathaway was very good. Um, as Catwoman. Woman, she really annoyed me as Catwoman. Um, you know, and you have, you're going to have actors and actresses that you don't like or lines that you really don't like. Like, I thought a lot of her lines in The Last Batman were, were in, her, in her appearance in it were just really, really corny. But, I mean, no, you've had... You've had Bane, and you've had other, you've had really great characters in there too, and um, I don't know. So I, I have very little to complain about with the, the current Batman series. I have not seen Batman vs Superman. I heard it was not that good though, so I don't know. But I'm not I'm not really big into the comic book ones. Uh, but between that, Suicide Squad, and everything else, and the Marvel movies, I've, I've heard a lot of things lately, and it sounds like. We're, we're in need of a revival a little bit because it sounds like a lot of these recent ones have not been very, very good. Oh, yeah. I've heard pretty pretty terrible things about Suicide Squad. I, I might check it out. Horrible. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I'm going to. I mean, it, it got really bad word of mouth, so I figured I'll just take the money. That's crazy. Um, last one I got for you, Chris. Uh, knowing you're a Chicago guy and everything, I want to ask you, Michael Jordan's Come Fly With Me, Airtime or Playground, what you got? <laughs> Throwback one, you uh, throwback one for you. Throwbacks, yeah. I'll go with come fly with me, um, but I, I feel like it's a toss-up. I mean, you, either you go either way with it, but I'll go with the first one. Dude, I haven't seen any of those in like twenty years, twenty-five. I probably seen one on, on MTV. I go pretty far back. Yeah, he yeah. had the MTV. He, he, he had the IMAX stuff that came out um, too. Right. That I know yeah. a lot of yeah. my friends were really big fans of. Everybody went in Chicago. At least everybody went to go see those when they came. I can't remember what it was called, but. Yeah, kind of crazy to think. Like, I mean, the other thing that got all that attention a couple months ago, the day that it was confirmed it was going to happen, was the LeBron Space Jam thing. That's going to be like a whole other thing. It's going to start the whole Michael LeBron comparison, too, when that actually happens. So I'm interested to see what happens with this. Yeah. Doesn't Michael want Blake Griffin instead of LeBron, something, something, something like that? <laughs> Probably, just because then that would threaten his legacy less. Uh, I don't know anybody saying LeBron, <laughs> or I'm sorry, Michael-Blake Griffin comparisons. I mean, he would get a little bit of space from that constant comparison. I, I mean, I wonder who that annoys more, Michael or LeBron. I'm sure it annoys Michael more, because LeBron still admits, even in that Lee Jenkins piece, he admits that he's still chasing Michael. But Michael's probably thinking, you know, every, I, I guarantee you the Greats probably care more about the ring conversation than we do as fans. And uh, so Michael's probably still thinking, like, oh, I don't care if you just be Golden State, I'll have three more rings than you. Yeah. You know, every time these guys win, between him and Kobe, they hold up how many fingers they want a ring for. And so you know he's doing that calculation in his head. But he still probably gets uncomfortable or angry when people bring up LeBron as being like, it's contemporary, you know, but. We'll see. I, I, I don't. I, I, I thought they confirmed that LeBron was going to be the guy for the Space Jam movie. I can't imagine. Like Blake Griffin's actually more entertaining to me. You know, he just did the stand-up thing a week ago or so. Yeah. I think he's more entertaining than LeBron. But he's had like, like I said, he's had like a really strange run with. I don't know if you want to call it luck because I think he didn't. He have like a run-in at a a nightclub too or something. Not not. I know Draymond had the one thing, not his. But I thought Blake got in trouble for something too aside from the thing where he hit the team trainer or the manager I don't know but I just kind of feel like Blake's had like a really last 
weird like last year and a half um, where his star power just doesn't quite seem exactly the same as what it was. I don't think his trade value is in exactly the same place as it was either. So we'll see. I could see I could see something with him, but I, I think LeBron LeBron is still as Blake Griffin. Everyone knows who he is. But I think LeBron's still kind of on a whole different level, even from where Steph is right now. And I think him and Durant are kind of on a different level. Oh yeah, and, and real quick, you know, you know, Michael, Scotty, Robin, they were happy when Golden State lost because you know if you're gonna break the record or you know break our record from 96 okay now you gotta win it all and when they did not you know deep down they were like <laughs> just laugh oh, like, yeah. okay <laughs> I guess you're, oh, you're not the I best mean, team the, all the time there's that, there's that Miami Dolphins football team the last undefeated football team we had in history and I mean they they said that they have a party literally every time I heard I team loses it. you know and so I mean you know whether the Bulls say it or not. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that I think the Bulls kind of braced themselves for it this year and kind of were prepared to give that crown over. Um, you know, Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan. I think Michael even, was it Clay that said Michael came up to him and said, go for it, you know, I want you to break the record. Yeah. And even saying something like that, while I think it probably has good intentions behind it, it's kind of like, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, go ahead, hit me. You're like, you're almost like daring someone to do it. And the fact that they don't get it done, it's kind of like, you know, you, you don't have to say anything, but everyone knows you prefer for your own record to stand. Records are made to be broken, but it doesn't mean you want to see it broken in your lifetime. So we'll see. I mean, but the thing is now, I, it's funny. I think 538 did a statistic on it, a write-up on it. Like the likelihood of Golden State breaking the record again next year is really, really small, even though they just got way better. And part of that is probably like them seeing that it takes way too much energy to go for the record. Like, if it happens, it happens. And if Durant is going to be there long term, there's a good chance it could happen on its own without them really having to push too hard for it. But, um, but you know, it, it's, it's interesting. And it's, I think now at this point, they could have won 70 games and we still, like, if we hadn't thought 73 was, like, a likelihood or a possibility, right. if they'd gone from 67 wins to 70 and then won a title, everybody would have taken that over the, the record, you know, because now... The record, you know, it's funny. The Bulls had that saying, don't mean a thing if you don't win the ring. And then Golden State literally is like the epitome of that. And so I think everyone now knows that you'd, ra- you'd much, much rather go ahead and just win this, the finals and not worry about how many wins you've got at the end of the season. That doesn't matter. No one's going to remember how many wins Cleveland had this year. It doesn't matter. They won the title. So I think that's really clear now. So, Chris, uh, we're two months away from you getting back to work with the Knicks. Uh, I know I- I'll be seeing you around uh, at the Garden. Um, what- what's the vacation like, man? Two months two two months to go, man. What do you got left? Oh, man, we'll see what comes up. I don't know. Um, I'm supposed <laughs> to go to Thailand exactly one month from today. Nice. I'm supposed to go to Thailand with a girlfriend. And we're trying to figure out now. She thought she was going to have to stay in town or get back to Chicago for a friend's birthday and now apparently the friend is moving somewhere else before that date comes up so we're thinking we may try to expand the trip and maybe go to like Vietnam or Cambodia or somewhere else in Southeast Asia so that's really the only thing I've got planned um, just trying to figure out some personal stuff with me trying to figure out maybe I should move apartments and stuff like that just to get another part of the city I don't know where to look um, everything here is so expensive I'm in Manhattan um, and I'm thinking, like, maybe I should go to Brooklyn, maybe I should go to Queens, but I'm, like, already in a really good spot in terms of getting to the Garden and getting the Knicks practice. So it's a tough call. Um, I would have to try to find a subletter and everything. I'd have to, like, pick up and move, which is always annoying after you've been settled in a place for a couple of years. So just trying to figure out personal stuff like that. But otherwise, everything is 
risk every day. No complaints at all. Well, just hope that, you know, they don't be in Thailand or Vietnam and then something with the Knicks go down. <laughs> tell the Knicks that. Don't tell me that. It's not like I can control anything. They, I mean, hell, the Amari thing, like I said, every time they do something, it's like you would think you're in the clear. I remember the first, after the first year I covered them, I was on a plane to go to a buddy's bachelor party over the summer. It was like a solid week and a half before preseason started. And then the Knicks sent out a press release that they fired Glenn Grunwald like after a 54-win season, which is their best season in almost 15 years. And I'm just like, wait, wait, they're firing their general manager in a year after they had their best year in 15 seasons? Like, what? Yep. It just doesn't make sense. And so there's always something that every summer there's at least one thing they do that really doesn't make sense. One year you look at Spargnani. Another year you look at them firing Grunwald. Another year you look and it's, you know, it's the fact that they're, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's Amari retiring as a Nick, even though he only played four years here and, you know, had, like, basically Hall of Fame numbers with Phoenix. Like, there, there's always something offbeat that happens with them. And I guess that's kind of the intrigue of covering them is that it keeps you on your toes and it kind of forces you to think outside the box of how to cover things that are really unusual in the first place and kind of how to put them in perspective. Not to even mention Fisher and the fact that all of a sudden he's trying to get back into basketball after having had like a total nosedive of a coaching career. So we'll see what happens, but I'll, I'll try my best to be ready however it goes so that I can be fair to you guys and give you guys good content once the season starts. Chris Harry, man, I wish you the best with the upcoming season. I know we'll uh, we'll, we'll catch up and link up soon, meet up at the Garden. Um, always a pleasure, uh, pleasure having you on the show. We, we went an hour and forty five, bro. It's probably the longest I ever went, but it's it's a lot to take in. Basketball, pop culture, you know, movies. Uh, really great conversation, and I always appreciate you coming on, bro. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you for having me and let me talk for this long with you. All right. Again, Chris Herring, Wall Street Journal, at HerringWSJ on Twitter. Thanks again, man. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. All right.